Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. The author, Luis Alberto Urrea, has written with authority about his Mexican roots. His best-known work, The Devil's Highway, brought readers into that world. It's filled with characters and scenes that reflect northern Mexico and the American Southwest, so much that he's often referred to as a border writer. Write what you know, as the saying goes. And his books, the fiction and the nonfiction, reflect his strong connection to his father's side of his family. He's telling a different kind of story in his new novel, Goodnight Irene. It's the story of an American woman who runs away from a tumultuous family in New York she enlists in the Red Cross during World War II and finds herself on the front lines in Europe driving an armored truck. It's inspired by a real story. His own late mother, the red-headed Irish-American, served on the front lines as a donut dolly. She's frying hot, fresh donuts to soldiers in the theater of war, bringing them a sense of comfort of home. Luis will be at the Miami Book Fair on Sunday. You can catch us there, too, We'll be taping a show before a live audience on Saturday at 1 p.m. We'll interview Carl Hyacin about his latest book, Wrecker. Right now, let's talk about the real-life mom that inspired Luis Alberto Urrea. Welcome, Luis. How are you, Carlos? It is wonderful to get to talk to you. It's just great. It's great that we're, we're able to celebrate authors all week. You know, uh, like uh, we had uh, Edwige Dandica earlier this oh. week, and she said, she told us, you know, let's let's celebrate books instead of ban them. And I'm totally with that sentiment. Yes. I've been banned. <laughs> Have you? Which which one of your books? Oh, man. I was, for a minute, I was the king of the band, brother. <laughs> oh, man. You should wear that. You should get a sash made that says I that. should. I should. The, um. Do you know the Libro Traficantes? Do you know that group? I don't know, but tell me. Was they're led by Tony Diaz, a politician um, from Texas, South Texas, and uh, they partially formed when Arizona pulled this insane thing of of banning books that were in any way Latino themed or quote minority themed or indigenously themed or. Uh, Etc. Anything well, that would go leave a lot there. Hand. They keep going. They keep going. Oh, they... the list was unbelievable. And the the point was to get it out of Mexican, Mexican American, or Latino hands in schools. Wow. And um, I was the first, and I didn't know it because I I was one of the founding members of the of the you know the Tucson Festival of Books, and many of us are now gone. So there are a few of us still around, but um, we're survivors, you know. Yeah. What what, but, book, uh, what book of I yours was, uh, was was so outrageous that uh, they couldn't have it in the hands of of people? The Devil's Highway, baby. Oh man, the seminal book. Hijo, and mira, I was I was walking across. The, you know, they do it on the campus uh, of University of Arizona in mm-hmm. Tucson, um, and I was walking across campus on my way to an event, and they're always packed, and it's wonderful, and it gives you a real ego boost. <laughs> And on my way, uh, a camera crew stopped me, camera in my face, just like the movies, microphone. And the reporter said, can we talk to you for a second? And I said, sure. And she said, uh, uh, what's your response to having the Devil's Highway banned in Arizona? And I said, basically, what? They were breaking the news to you. They broke the news news. on camera. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, yeah, yeah, it's it's being banned and we need a response. And I said, well, for what reason is it being banned? And she said, well, there were two reasons. 
one satanic title. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, un-American content. Oh, right? that, that hurts. That burns. That was weird. And I, 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 I responded some version of, first of all, that is on every map of Arizona. Are you going to go through and remove a traditional place name off the maps because it's satanic? That's absurd. Don't give them any ideas. Yeah, right. <laughs> and secondly, uh, I said it's being taught at the Border Patrol Academy to no. Border Patrol agents. And if it's American enough for the Border Patrol, you know, it's American enough for readers. And I didn't think much about it. I went and got on stage. And that was what began this insane purge. And what it was was aimed at the kids, especially in Chicano studies programs. But uh, anything that the state didn't want these kids to read because it would be subversive to them was pulled. And it began an avalanche. Sandra Cisneros, uh, Sherman Alexi, indigenous writers from Arizona. All of a sudden, Shakespeare was taken away from the Chicanos. I thought, what the heck? And so wow. a whole bunch of us obviously began protesting and taking action and all that stuff. One of the ways I got around it is I there was a, a, a small publisher in Arizona, a really good friend of mine, and I wrote a book of poetry specifically for this and gave it to them. And we, we you know, used the, the small profits, but some profits for the kids and uh the wow, Tucson Facility books had a special event with the kids uh, it was on c-span and uh i was able to introduce some of these students to a packed house and they got a standing ovation which was very powerful wow amazing so um the this... libro traficantes tony diaz got really angry about this and it was in in light of that kind of thing happening at an accelerated pace what Witness year, how what year right was now. this more or less hijo Maybe 90, no, it was 2002 or three. Oh, wow. It was, it was, it was in 2000. And um, wow. so, so, yeah, so this is an issue, obviously. I mean, it's it's just, it seems like we go through these waves and cycles. Oh, yeah. But it's always, it's always the same groups that, that, that whoever the they is, the they in, inside parentheses don't want to hear from, right? Like, it's yeah. always oh, the absolutely. same. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh this the Libro Traficantes formed um, down in Houston, and Tony Diaz, very sly Latino politician, thought, well, they call us narco traficantes all the time, but what if we become Libro Traficantes? I love that. I love he got, that. He got buses and trucks, and he got hundreds and hundreds of copies of the banned books, and then smuggled them back into Arizona. I love and that. To the kids free, and I thought this guy. I just got to see him uh, uh, last week in Texas Amazing. at a book festival. So here here comes the caravan, right? This is the this is the here caravan one, right? Yeah. And and I want to talk to you more about your poetry too, uh, which mm. I, I, it just feels like you like you think in poetry. So I'm I'm excited to talk to you about that. Boy. But but all, the the big excitement right now is is your latest book, and I want to talk to a little talk a little bit about it because yeah, it seems like. Um, I'm not going to use, uh, I'm going to say it, I guess, because I've already said it, was, but it's a departure, right? But it's more like, it's a story unlike anything you've really written before. And it's probably a World War II story unlike anybody's ever read or heard before. 
I, I, I will take that one, the second one. Mm. I don't know. You know, I think I always write about the same kind of thing, about the human soul mm. and about, um, you know, people being called to, to duty higher than they think they can accomplish. Um, it's always secretly about God. Shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> well, you grew up um, in a strong Catholic household, right? Not really. <laughs> oh, no? But didn't, you, didn't, well, I read, no. didn't I read yeah. somewhere that you were going to be a priest or you wanted to be I a priest? I wanted to be a priest, yeah, against my father's wishes. My dad was a Mexicano. And by the way, my dad, my Mexican relatives were the red-haired ones. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Check it out. My grandmother, Mexicana from Sinaloa. Okay. Her name was Guadalupe McMurray. I love that. So every A lot of that branch of the family looked Irish. My mom, you know, she was a, a socialite from New York City. Very sophisticated. Her family... They were friends with uh, John Steinbeck and Albert Einstein. Her uncle used to call Al Einstein Al. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and, you, you gave uh, me everything right there. Yeah, and she she had fallen into this Tijuana world, which I don't completely understand. But I, I was fascinated by her, and she had what I know now was PTSD and from the war. Oh and God. I slowly, you know, uncovered details about what she had done and what they'd experienced and all of these women have been completely forgotten i mean actually institutionally forgotten well let's they, let's let's start with the outside of it right like painting the they, full picture what what were these women what were their roles um in world war ii because you said a lot of the research has been has been lost to time or has been lost to like uh you know records being destroyed so give us the outside who were who were the so-called donut dollies uh, there were about 120 of them in the field at any one time. I think there were about 400 ultimately. They served in World War II and then Korea and then finally in Vietnam where the program kind of fell apart. Um, and uh, they were volunteers to the Red Cross who wanted to serve the country and weren't afraid to go to the front lines. All the women, except for nurses, served in the rear and some some pilots who would fly a plane closer to combat and then fly back or drive back because it makes sense the nurses would be in the rear like that's where you take the wounded and that's yeah know. but 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 the red cross ladies you know were close to combat as well for the mash hospitals so they were there but these women had the opportunity to drive a two and a half ton gmc six-wheel drive truck into combat wow and some of them were just fire breathers, you know, they were they were patriots, they wanted to serve. Um, and uh, it was also, a, a, you know, I didn't have time to deal with it very much in the book, but I wanted to make it clear that, you know, the, the general impression, I think, of World War II is, you know, brave white dudes out there saving the world. And there were a lot of women, there were a lot of people of color, there were a lot of Latinos. Latinos were heroic in World War II. So all of that was on my mind. My mom, not anywhere near Latina. Um, and she had had a relationship fall apart in New York City. That's the first line, basically, of the book. And she decided that she wanted to go do something meaningful. All of her family on the East Coast, all the men had been veterans of World War I. 
and she knew she couldn't go fight and i don't think she had it in her to fight but she she had it in her to go serve somehow wow um and so these women went to training in washington dc um they had to learn how to shoot a gun they had to learn how to you know put on a gas mask they had to learn how to make donuts they did a the full boot camp plus they learned how yeah to it cook. was a fashion fashion boot club they were given girdles <laughs> oh my god you know going into battle with a rifle and a girdle a valuable thing to have a girdle in combat <laughs> apparently and all this stuff they went through and to learn to drive these trucks and uh, then they were shipped overseas and uh you know the the service they did was amazing my my mom everything that's in the novel though it's not a book about my mother it, every plot development are the actual things biographically that happened to my mother amazing and it was a way for me to decode my mother's madness that i knew at the end of her life um you know including a cataclysmic injury that almost killed her oh my goodness so uh you know that was that was essentially it and they they got to to europe and just to give you a quick idea and then i'll be quiet but no they, no please do not be i'm the one that needs to be quiet you talk I was, okay <laughs> and this is going to be like a ruben blades concert then i'm going to go all night but he uh she she got to england and their first duty basically they did some duties but their first major combat kind of duty was being stationed at an American air base on the east coast of England. Mm. There were many of them, and they attended to the the pilots and the crews, and they made them coffee and donuts every morning, every night, and so forth. And then they uh, sailed across the channel and landed on Utah Beach. They drove their donut truck onto Utah Beach. Oh, that is that is astounding. That is astounding. It's like nutty. We, we talk about the beach storming the beaches of Normandy and and. And yeah, your mom being part of brother. part of those waves. The only mercy in it was that they went a couple of days after the initial waves mm -hmm. of, of attack. But there were things all over the beach, you know, weapons and still blood. And, and people. For some reason, the ocean was full of oranges. They could never understand why there were oranges everywhere. But, you know, it, it's a it was a weird scene. And so they hooked are, up with. So these are little ahead. details that that she that escaped her, that 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 kind of slipped and bled out of her, and maybe you pulled out of her over the years, but it seems like she, all these details really, they lived in her in her skin, in her DNA. Oh, they did, in her nightmares, wow. yeah. Um, wow. It was her nightmares, really, but, and then they, they joined Patton. They drove all through Western Europe, Southern France with Patton. Wow. They liberated Paris. That's incredible. They liberated Brussels. They were caught in the siege of Bastogne. They were caught in the Battle of the Bulge when the Germans broke through. After that, they drove through the Battle of the Bulge and went to Weimar, Germany, and then liberated Buchenwald. It's insane. So, you know, the, the reason no one knows this story is, first, the, the women have died. But secondly, the records building, the Red Cross records building burned down, and all of the actual records are gone. So, you know, I was very lucky. My mother, it's it's behind me, you can't see it, but she had a footlocker. The army gave all each of the women a footlocker um, and gave them a provisional rank, though they were in the Red Cross, of army lieutenants in case they were captured by the Germans, that maybe the Germans would honor, uh, you know, the, An officer. The, the, yeah, the conventions to not do extremely evil things to officers. 
Um, so she must have. She must have. When we talk about this thing, I mean, we we draw kind of the cute outlines of it. Oh, the donut dollies. But like you're talking, these are women who are seeing upfront war unvarnished. In oh yeah. Did she talk to you about stories? Were there stories that she shared with you that that kind of paint that very very real image? Um, it, it's interesting. She wasn't willing, but put this in context. I found out about it really in fourth grade. You know, we'd oh. been living in Tijuana. My dad was a military man with his own horrors from Mexico. He didn't go to war, but he served in the know, military in the in the Mexican military. Latin American politics. Yeah, he Oof. was he was a captain. He was on the presidential staff of six presidents. Wow. So he knew quite literally where the bodies were buried, if you know what I mean. And he and, understood. He must have understood her in a way. Yeah, they were in. I think they were in competition. I, you, you know, era macho mi papá, pues. You know, and <laughs> I think it was hard for him that she was more of a war hero than, because he had never gone to war, but he'd been through other things. But anyway, wow. So when I was in fourth grade, that that chest I told you, the the the, the Footlocker, foot mm -hmm. we had this little apartment in the barrio in san diego barrio logan logan heights and uh you know it was a terrible little apartment didn't have any money we were a little bit poor um and so the the footlocker was in the little living room with a you know it had a toyita over it you know and a little it was doily rain yeah it was it was like our coffee coffee table, table. oh and she had put all of her memories in it pictures mm -hmm. letters certificates maps kids have she had everything in there. She had, she had jackets she'd brought back. She had a Luger that she'd stolen from a German desk. Hijo, it was like, I didn't know this. I was just told you won't. She used to call me dear boy, dear boy. She had you kind of like open. that lilting, that lilting uh, northeast yeah. accent. She that, yeah, she aristocratic. That, yeah, she had that weird, you know, that you hear in nineteen forties movies. That weird little East Coast accent. And she'd say, we're not going to open Mother Dear's chest. And I'd say, no, Mom, not, nah, no way. Um, and you know how it is. By the time I got to fourth grade, I just had to see it. And she went to work. My dad slept late. So, you know, in the semi-quiet of the apartment, I, he, I opened it. And I saw all that stuff, and I took it all out. I was like, wow. I was just looking at all these things and going through them, things I didn't understand. My wife and I, of course, La Cinderella and I went through all of them many times working on the book when they, you could start piecing the story together. Um, and there were pictures there that you know meant nothing to me. There was a picture of Patton and de Gaulle standing together saluting. You know, I thought, wow, who are these guys? And um, <laughs> what I didn't pieces know. of history that you were just you were just unearthing? It was just old dudes to me. You know, and I'm, uh, I'm curious about how all these all these things obviously add together and you've told us such a such a poetic weaving of things about how these all these things affect how you were raised and how you're parented and i yes. want i want to talk to you about that but first we have to take a little break our guest today is luis alberto urrea he's a mexican american poet novelist and essayist he'll be at the book fair on sunday presenting his latest book goodnight irene luis talk to me about then, you know, this very, uh, the, the, the lightest way you can say is a colorful upbringing. Uh, the truth is <laughs> you, you had parents who, who both, um, like a lot of parents, you know, might lead, lead, have lived through some heavy things before they have their children. 
And I'm yeah. and I'm curious, looking back, how this how this affected you think the way that you were parented? Because you said you felt like your mom had PTSD from what she saw. Oh, I know she did. Yeah. yeah. In what way? How do you know? A lot of research like, into like, it. Yeah. Like when, uh, like when you looked at the research and paired it up with what your life was like, how did you say, oh, this was these were some telltale signs? Screaming all night in your sleep. Oh. That's a good one. Wow. Isolation. Explosions of rage that you don't understand. My father as well. My father, from the things he'd been through, was also half crazy. I didn't know it. I thought, wow, parents sure are weird, man. <laughs> and he too had horrible nightmares, and he ground his teeth until they all shattered. He had no teeth. Oh, please. Um, and uh, he was convinced that the dead, I didn't understand until much later, hmm. the dead were coming after him for revenge. And honestly, and because we're, you know, because we're both Latinos, you'll get this because sometimes everything's a Garcia Marquez story, you know, <laughs> and he had been telling me for years that the dead were after him, the dead were coming to get him. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And he came and woke me up one morning. It, it had to be the middle of the night. And he said, come in my room right now. And he took me to his room. It was all dark. And he said, put your hand on my bed. And I put my hand on the bed and I swear to you, the mattress was jumping up and down by itself. And he said, te dije, que wow. te dije, están aquí. And I was like, okay, dad, good night. I didn't know, what, what do you do? What you do know, you was, do with that? I was like 12, maybe 13, thinking, dang. And um, because my dad was muy Latino and kind of a player, my mom worked during the day. He worked night shifts. So when she was gone, he would bring his girlfriends over and he got caught. So she sent him packing. So it was just my mom and me. And I think that's when it got super intense, her her night terrors. And I've been telling people this. You know, I've been on tour on Irene now since May. So, wow. You've been telling yeah. the story. Yeah. It's crazy. I've, you know. It's, I've met thousands, literally, of people, which has been amazing to talk to them about my mom. So cool. But anyway. But no, but that's uh, that's beautiful. I mean, that's almost the point of a book like this, too, right? Is you yeah. also trying to grapple using fiction, right, to grapple with a truth, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and to know your mom. Yeah, and to know other children of Donut Dollies, which has been astonishing, man. Oh, to how interesting. To their mom and say, is she a donut dolly? And Cindy and I can look at it and say, yeah, that's a that's the club mobile behind her. What Which truck is it? They don't know. So we've been able to take people's names and go through all of our research and find out not only what truck their mother was in, what it was named, who her partners were, but there was one lady, you'll appreciate this, hmm. She comes, she's got the picture. This is my mom, is that a, yeah, that's a donut dolly truck. She was a donut dolly. Same thing, didn't know what the truck was, where she was. She Mom never talked about it. She had so her own we, She had her own footlocker of mysteries. Oh yeah, everyone did. So we went through all of our research, found her mom, found the truck, the name of the truck, uh, and we found out, and this is where you know, this is the hand of providence and I'm, why I'm so thankful for this career because it leads to some service that's mind boggling. We found out 
that her mother was in the foremost vehicle that drove into Paris for the liberation. It was the first truck to drive past the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, her oh, mom. Wow. She did not know her mom was actually a war hero. That is how, amazing. How cool is that? That is amazing. I know. So you feel like service is, you know, did I'm you... serving donuts in my own way. I guess. <laughs> you need to get a donut maker for your house. Like, oh, you do... gosh. Okay. <laughs> Are there, when you met other, really other, other people like you, other kids who were raised by women who had been on the front lines in this, in this role that in a lot of ways has been forgotten. Were yeah. there things in common that you found? Were there, was there yeah. like a brothership, uh, you know, like a, a siblinghood that you felt with that? Oh yeah. I think it's a huge family. Um, you know, it's, uh, we have very similar experiences. The, the past is very cloudy, um, often not, not, told or explained or they know things or you know they have a picture and they want to know mm. and some of the stories are really mysterious we can't get to the bottom of them so that's always kind of rich like what like was was what was one of those because uh, someone like you who thinks in poetry and sees a story with an open end was there one of those stories that stays with you like this yeah um... we've we've had a couple of people who have pictures of their moms wearing donut dolly regalia but we can't find them in any of the records or 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 histories or anything at all hmm. and you know one person especially whose mother committed suicide from it hmm. i think we both kind of think that she actually was probably some sort of a spy or a secret agent of some sort wow and maybe the donut dolly stuff was a was a cover was a cover for that yeah which yeah, there's another book. Yeah, listen, you're the you're the guy to be thinking about it. No, not me. I can't do another one. But oh. um, and you I want to do... throw this out. You said you can't. I want to. Yeah, tell me. No, no more donut dolly books. You know, this one almost killed me, brother. And uh, I I wanted to bring my mother back, and give her glory. And now, thousands of people know her and kind of love her. You know, and they want pictures of her, and it's so cool. And her tr truck driving partner, which maybe we could talk about later, but. Um, you can... know, the one thing I wanted to leave with you, though, is that all the World War II women are gone. There's one woman who's 102. It's, she's hard of hearing, so it's hard to talk to her on the phone. Um, but the people who are still with us are the Vietnam era donut dollies. And they have become this amazing nationwide family, because unlike the older generation, these women are all hooked up on the internet and they keep track electronically and they they come see us and uh it's so amazing i feel like we have gotten a whole new family with these women almost every city we go there'll be one or two and they're always in touch with each other and uh you know the big difference is my mom's generation sort of went mm -hmm to the war thinking that they were Hedy Lamar or Joan Crawford or something. And these women, as one of the Vietnam donut dollies said to me was, man, we were all Janis Joplin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were rock and roll people. That's and so uh, it's a, it's a wonderful community and they really want someone to, to work uh, on a book about them. And they have, all the good 
juice. So I'm just going to tell y'all, any writers listening, think about it. I that's, can hook you. That's 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 a good that's a good push. Say, uh, you know, yeah, uh, Luis Alberto Urrea kind of pushed me in that direction. I, I'm curious, <laughs> you know, you you write a book like this. It's so it's obviously fiction, but it's so personal. And you, did it help you understand your mom? Did it help oh, you? Yeah. Tell me about that. Um, Maybe even forgive her, like for some of the things that maybe as a kid you were like, why is mom like this? Yeah, my mom was very, very, it, it was my job, I think, to keep her spirits up. Hmm. And uh, I knew the things that would make her laugh. And my friends were all that way too. And, you know, there's 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 a really wonderful side to this. Uh, I don't want to paint donut dollies as, you know, being raging, sorrowful, because it's not that way. And anyone who knows somebody with PTSD knows that it comes and goes. It comes and goes. Um, my mother was very service oriented. Um, my mother, and now I know kind of why, because she attended to tens of thousands of young men and helped them. Uh, whenever any of my friends in high school got in trouble or back in those days got thrown out of their houses, she mm -hmm. took them in. Oh, we wow. always had four or five dudes living in the house. Wow. And she cared for them and fed everybody. And it was amazing. She was so happy then. And I know partially because she had crushing nightmares, she'd have, you know, four or five long haired rock and roll animals in the house. She had an honor guard. Yeah. Also, you know, for a, a long time, and one of the most formative things, in fact, the subject of my first books is I, I, uh, I went back to Tijuana and worked with a relief crew, a missionary crew, but I was a translator. And, you know, spent many, 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 many days and hours and years in the Tijuana garbage dump or at orphanages or prisons, you know, etc. Prostitutes, all that stuff, taking care of people with a fantastic preacher that was my one of my many gurus. Um, so my mother, and I didn't realize this till later, was just immediately back into the Clubmobile Corps and doing service. She didn't have the heart to go down there. She couldn't take any more awfulness. However, every week when I went, she had rounded up from the neighbors empty uh, milk jugs, plastic, and she'd fill them all and send me every week with 10, 20 gallons of water for the poor. Wow. She would do little clothing drives. She would, you know, round up old donuts. It was an amazing thing. And I realize now, you know, she was, she was doing service just like she did in the Red Cross. She had a streak of service that, that just ran through her. But I think even to, even to, even to have enlisted right, for that particular kind of job when she was a socialite. I mean, she was probably well-to-do. Like you said, she was, if her family knew the knew the Steinbecks and the Einsteins uh, on a first-name <laughs> basis, on a nickname basis, um, she could have lived that kind of life. But there, what did you learn about her, her, what it was that inspired her to do that, that kind of service work? Well, like I said, she had a terrible first relationship. And uh... so in that way, she's like the character in the novel. Right. Yeah, everything that happens in the novels based on her, mm. on her experiences, um, and just so people know, it's not my mom, it's Irene. But my mother's middle name was Irene. Bakasepan, mm. a little <laughs> a, for you detectives, you know, it's a little, it's a little clue that little Easter egg, as the kids say now. The Easter egg, yeah. 
stinking kids. But anyway, um, you know, she uh, and she and her truck driving partner, Jill, who's named Dorothy in the book, they actually appear just to remind you that there really was a Phyllis and there she is. Um, and this isn't this is not Phyllis, but without Phyllis, these characters couldn't exist. Um, and you you found the okay. So in the book, obviously, she meets she meets this person who becomes a lifelong friend of hers, who was modeled yeah. after a person that that was her lifelong friend, right? And you yeah. and you found her and you met her, right? What was oh, that yeah. like? That was a miracle. There were so many weird secular miracles or happenstance or weird mojo or karma. I don't know what they were. The shaking beds. So, yeah. So my mom. Yeah, the shaking beds. That's a good title, except it's kind of misleading, isn't it? Well, Sounds can... R-rated. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so my wife, Cindy, is a reporter, is a journalist. That's how we met. We were a journalism scandal in Arizona. I love it. I love it Interviewed all. and then got married. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, she she helps me with all these projects, and she's a wizard at, at, at research, right? And... Um, she had never heard of the donut dollies and i thought if she's never heard of the donut dollies most americans have never heard of the donut dollies and i was thinking that i've spent so much time trying to honor my dad and my family because my family was all mexican except my mom mm -hmm. the only north american in the family i never met my gringo family ever oh, wow yeah never saw them she had removed herself and kept going west you know, again, PTSD, especially in women. So, um, yeah, so Cindy was asking me about this Donut Dolly stuff, and we discussed it, and I, we went through her, my mom's footlocker, and she had left journals, some of which I couldn't bear to look at, because as she got, I don't want to say crazy, as she got more and more disturbed, the focus of her despair and ire fell upon me and I could not read pages about, you know, how I'd abandoned her and how I was awful. And I was just trying to live a life and sending back every bit of my paycheck I could to my mom. But of course she was just lost in a, in a maelstrom. Um, but anyway, we were going through the, the, the chest and all the pictures and, you know, the pictures that first shocked me into knowing what she had done as a little boy were the pictures of the dead bodies at Buchenwald. Oh, we went she... through all of it together. And... Wow, she had photos of that. Oh, yeah, she was of, a liberal. Of the, of the death camps, of the death camps. She was in... one of the first ones into Buchenwald. I still have the pictures. I don't know what to do with them. Yeah, well, it tells um, you everything about how, how she was affected, how she, oh, yeah. you know, about oh, how that did. leads to trauma. She saw oh, the yeah. worst of it. She saw, oh, yeah, she saw, and she was almost killed. She, uh, you know, she spent six weeks in a MASH hospital and uh, came home unable to walk. So, you know, she fought her way back. Anyway, wow. so we were going through all the stuff and S Cindy found this this little kind of essay thing, very old on old paper called Miss Jill Goes to War. Mm -hmm. And we knew, oh, Jill, you know, that was mom's driver. And uh, Cindy's reading it and there's a an address label on the back of it. And so we thought, well, heck, you know, maybe maybe the family still lives there. We were sure she was dead. And uh, so Cindy wrote a very respectful letter, you know, knowing that she's talking to the family of a probably, you know, 90 some hundred year old 
dead grandma or something and sent the letter and turns out that was Jill's house and she was living there still. Oh my God. And check this out. She was less than an hour and a half from our house. Oh my God. This whole time. This whole time. And I thought, wait, my mom's best friend, my mom's only combat witness, the driver of her truck lives an hour and a half away in Illinois. Are you kidding? And so we wrote her a letter. Cindy mailed it. Miss Jill called us a day or two days later. And she was amazing. And she talked to Cindy. And then she wanted to talk to me. And, you know, the, none of that Luis business for her. She's a Midwesterner. You know, she she was like, I want to talk to Louis. <laughs> <laughs> and I got on the phone and I was effusive. You know, I was so excited to meet you and all. And she interrupted me and she said, Louis, you must come see me soon. I'm 94 years old. Don't try to wait until I turn 95 if you catch my trip. <laughs> and I thought, I'm in love with Miss Jill, dude. <laughs> so we drove down the next day. And this is where the novel came from, honestly, because oh. I'd been trying to figure out how to write this book because I knew I had to pay my dues to my mother's memory. And we went to her house, knocked, she opened the door. And in real life, she really was six foot, six foot one. Wow. And now at 94, you know, era viejita, abuelita, you know? Yeah. And she, she put her arm through mine and she led me in and she showed me a picture of my mother on the wall. She had not seen my mother since 1954. Wow. And yet and she, she kept the picture of her. she still had the picture of my mom on the wall looking super glamorous and she said lewis i drove the truck but your mother brought the joy and it was like you know it was like biblical <laughs> you know the 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 uh plank fell out of my eye the 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 covering over my eye fell away and i saw my mother almost for the first time and i looked at her and i thought wait a minute this is her at 27 years old proudly going there to to serve these boys in great danger and i came back home and we went back through all of my pictures and i i thought wait a minute in every picture no matter where she is in the war she looks joyous maybe not happy but she's a light she's glowing and i thought and that is what got hammered down luis talk to me about you know, processing so many of these things, right? There, there's so many ways that this could have come, could have come out in your life, but for you, it came out as a creative endeavor, both in writing, in poetry, which we'll talk about some today, um, and this <laughs> book. How did how did writing come into your life? Like, how did that become the vehicle for processing a lot of things that could be really traumatic? I loco. Well, this is a complicated one, but you know, you can't grow up in the midst of so many stories and so much fantastic stuff and you know honestly magical realism there's a reason why latinos came up with it because our lives are so full of magic and i think we are trained somehow to to pay very close attention to those little details that upon reflection become magical hmm. and i think a lot of times you know for me i can tell you exactly being in tijuana i thought tijuana was heaven on earth i didn't know that people looked down on tijuana I thought dirt streets, that was the way to go, dude, you know? 
the 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 elotero going by with the with the cart elotes elotes calientes right <laughs> right and it seemed like the, a minute later he'd come back down the same dust alley yelling paletas nieve fría and I, you know it was magic <laughs> how did demon hot elotes turn into cold ice cream what happened you know and it was all stories all the time and i realized once we moved to san diego and you got to understand that i didn't understand border we just went back and forth back and forth every week i'd go to tijuana with my dad and then i'd come back and i had i had ninos y ninas who would look after me i was quite ill i had tuberculosis which is why we left tijuana oh wow yeah it was it was eating up our barrio and uh you know one of the rules in my family was never tell anybody a you're from tijuana or b you had tuberculosis so i tell everybody because i think shame or <laughs> embarrassment that's not going to do hmm. you know it's just not that's not right that you can't my dad used to tell me you know the problem with us as mexicans is we always act like we're at the at the desk of the patron holding our straw hats in our hands and he said stand up straight so i thought okay i'm going to stand up straight and own it why not is that so i had all these people who were precious to me and i realized they didn't write they didn't some of them read but they would tell me all the oral history and all the legends and they would do weird stuff too you know my my nina if you had an earache, she wanted to pee in your ear. Oh, the, 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 the I'd be like, no, what do you know? These, these uh, home remedies. <laughs> so all that stuff was going on. And I just wanted to honor them, but I didn't know how. And, uh, you know, I, I, it, I, I didn't really understand that I probably wanted to be a writer I probably wanted to be Bob Dylan or Steve McQueen, <laughs> something like that, you know. Uh, and those those avenues were not going to be open to me. But I couldn't stop myself. And I remembered the moment. And that was in my Nina's house. She it was all women except my 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 godfather. And he and my father would go to work together. And he, my dad would leave me with the women. So I was raised by the women. Um, and one of them was named Angelita. They called her Kela. And Kela worked outside of the home cleaning other people's houses and she'd come home exhausted and she couldn't read. Mm. And uh, we were sitting at a table together and I had my little notebook and it was full of drawings and, you know, and she said, Oye, Luisito, leme algo. I said, really? And she said, yeah. Read something to me. Mm. Read something to me. I was a little embarrassed. My first public reading, you know. <laughs> So I read her something I'd written in Spanish, right? And she said, in Spanish, I'll translate it, but she just sat there looking at me and she said, Ay, Luisito, you speak so pretty. ¿Cómo te lo dijo en español? How did she say it in Spanish? Qué bonito hablas. And I thought, you know, I didn't know that was my first book review, <laughs> but I thought, oh my goodness. You know, this woman that I loved so much, she wasn't that much older than me. So, I, you know, I had a little bit of a romantic thing going on. too. But, <laughs> but uh, it, it moved me so much. And I thought, nobody's going to tell her story. She's going to come through this life and be gone. And it hit me that all of my family was that way. And as we move farther north 
in San Diego because my mom wanted to get away from the border. So we moved to a, you know, a little working class suburb, which is very nice in San Diego in the north. And then my dad and me were the alien weirdos. Hmm. And, you know, we got called all the names, all the all the stuff. And try try uh, flying your name being Urea up there. Right. First of all, it became urea, and then it became urethra, urine, diarrhea. You know, they didn't. They didn't, so, under, they didn't know what to do with you. And on top yeah, of that, and on top of that, for folks who have never met you, you're you're fair skinned and you're blue eyed. So, I am, man. With a, with am. a Tijuana I'm accent. Undercover agent. I'm a I'm a spy. <laughs> um, and honestly, that's when I started cleaving closer to my mom's culture. Hmm. It was a survival thing. Hmm. I was going to survive. But I kept thinking about the people I loved, and I was the writer. In fact, if you talk to my high school friends, I went to the high school that became Ridgemont High in the movie. Oh, really? It looked like that, bro. It was it was a dirt lot with you know. Fast times but, at Luis at Luis Alberto's uh, high, right? That's fast nice. times at Urrea High. <laughs> um, so you clearly were you, you were clearly thinking already, and because you were surrounded by poetry. Um, yeah. You were thinking in that Romans poetry makes up a, a lot of your a lot of your work. I have a pact with myself that because I write across the genres, I have to when I do a fiction book, do poetry and do nonfiction. So I've got that. I've got a long piece of, about immigrants in Illinois in the new National Geographic. That's the nonfiction piece. Wow. And I have a book of poetry called Piedra. Uh, and Irene. So I, I feel like, you know, I, I'm doing my duty to God and country. You, you are fulfilling your role as a writer, that's for sure. Will you will you read us a little bit of your poetry as we're getting close to the end of the hour? Okay. Uh, I'll read you a short one, but it'll, it'll explain some things perhaps to you. You know, I'm getting older and uh, I've had a few, a few struggles with health myself. And uh, I wrote this in one of those dark nights of the soul, but it's, it's called Cielo which means, of course, sky. And here it goes. I loved you most when you were empty, black obsidian curve of cerulean thirst, open to drink these earthly dreams. I loved you best, nodded into storms, wrathful green about your business of twisters, floods, or after, when your tears dropped into the mouths of lilies. You. Have you come for me now? Is it time so soon? You who carried away Zapata and my mother who carried away the poets of the Popol Vuh, have you opened yourself to carry me up while I am still singing? A little mortality there. It really brings yeah. some cheer to the coffee hour. They're dealing with some things here, man. That's, uh, yes, sir. But, That's our but... job. Yeah. Well, I hope that folks will come out and get to hear them talk uh, more about your work at the Miami Book Fair. Luis, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Thank you, brother. Our guest today was Luis Alberto Urrea. He's a Mexican-American poet, novelist, and essayist. His latest book, Goodnight Irene, uh, he will be talking about Sunday at the Miami Book Fair. And that's Sundown for Thursday, November 16th. Leslie Obay Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is also our producer. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. 
Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio, and our engineer is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. And if you like our show, come see us live at the Miami Book Fair. I'll be interviewing the great Carl Hyacin on Saturday, November 18th at 1 p.m. We'll talk about his latest book, Wrecker. Coming up next week on the program, we talk about a sweet play showing locally. It's about home, forgiveness, and pastries. Written by renowned poet Richard Blanco and local playwright Vanessa Garcia. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only.